Welcome to the Faith Broadcast. I'm Carrick Butler. I lead Faith Christian Center right here in Austell, Georgia. Thank you for tuning in today. I believe today's message is going to equip you and empower you to make Jesus famous in your everyday life. As you listen, something good is going to happen to you. So listen up to the message, apply it, and I'll talk to you after today's message. But let's go to the book of Revelation tonight. And what I want to do is look at Revelation from a 21st century perspective. I'm not going to preach at you. I told him on purpose, I don't want the handheld because I don't want to get tempted to preach and tune up. I just want to teach you tonight from God's Word. Can we do that? Amen. Amen. Okay, let's look at the book of Revelation, and let's take a 21st century look at it. Now, the first thing that we have to understand about Revelation is when it is being written. And I always make this joke starting off that oftentimes the book of Revelation has become like the red-headed stepchild of the Bible. We put it all the way in the back, and we don't want anybody to know it's there. And sometimes, in a lot of churches, not this church because it's Word of Faith, it's Faith Christian Center, people don't talk about Revelation except once every two years, and they do it like on a Tuesday night when no visitors are going to show up. And then after they talk about it, we don't hear about it again. And it's very rare that when you're scrolling through your social media that you see some pastor quoting something from the book of Revelation. Am I right about that? Because there's so much stuff in there that we're thinking a beast with ten horns and seven heads and a white horse rider and all this stuff and it becomes in a lot of ways conspiratory oh this person's this political figure and it's that political figure that what's happened is we have lost the intent of John when he was writing the greatest book in the Bible we got some New Testament scholars they said amen you say how can it be the greatest book in the Bible it's the ending And if you haven't read the book of Revelation, how would you feel if you went to see Titanic in the movie theaters and you left the last half hour out because you had some place to be? And you don't know how it ends. Well, it doesn't matter to me. In the end, Jesus wins. We know Jesus wins, but we want to know how he wins. And sometimes people tune it out because they say, I know how it's going to go down, but I'm going to present it to you in the next 45 minutes in a different way that maybe in presenting to you what John was actually doing, you might like it. One of the greatest theologians calls Revelation the climax of prophecy. It's where the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament prophecies come together in a cataclysmic bang that points to the victory of the Lamb over the forces of the world. Now, if I could get deeper, if I had to title Revelation, I would call it a tale of two cities, Babylon versus the New Jerusalem. And it's amazing how John juxtaposes wickedness versus righteousness in this book. And that's what I want you to understand is that scholars believe today in Pentecostal communities, as I was just in Cleveland, Tennessee, University working on my PhD, that we want to shift Revelation to make it look now, as it's gonna be preached going forward, as what theologians call a piece of literature known as resistance literature. When we look at Rome in the book of Revelation, what we see from John, writing as a first century author, somebody committed to Jesus, is not necessarily saying, This is how it's going to go down because we knew it was going to go down. But saying that, it's going to go down so the message is 
resist the cultural influences and stay faithful to the Lamb, and that is Jesus Christ. So the very first thing that we have to see is go with me to Revelation chapter 19. I know I said one, but let's go to Revelation 19. And let's see what the book of Revelation is about. Are you with me tonight? Boy, you're getting me excited. It says in verse 10 of Revelation 19, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant. Let me just make mention here how it's interesting that John is in the Spirit. Would you all agree? Why he's writing Revelation? He's in the Spirit. Even in the Spirit, John almost bows down and worships an angel. Which tells me that even when you're in the Spirit, you can come out of the Spirit and be tempted and be deceived. And so he says, don't worship me. Instead, he says, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. How many have heard this verse before? Now, this is a very difficult verse in the English, but it comes alive in the Greek. Because what we're dealing with here, where it says the testimony of Jesus, martu esu, is we're dealing with a subjective genitive. And so I know that sometimes you look up words and you say this Greek word means this and this, but really Greek, the essence of Greek is in the syntax. It's in the arrangements of words and it's how a word is functioning. And a subjective genitive would basically translate this verse meaning that the example of Jesus throughout the book of Revelation is the content of what the Spirit is saying in this prophecy. Which simply means that the book of Revelation and the message of Revelation in essence is the example that Jesus has laid out for us. So if we're going to grasp the message of the book of Revelation, in grasping the message, it is in grasping the example that Jesus gave for us to follow. And how many know that's exactly what the Spirit does? When we yield to the Spirit and He brings us into the Word of God, He brings the example of Jesus alive to us. Which tells me that if you get into the book of Revelation and really start to study it, all you're going to see in chapter 1 through chapter 22 is a revelation of the example of Jesus. In other words, if you commit yourself to the book of Revelation, there's only one conclusion, and that is Jesus is going to come alive to you in a powerful way because that's the Spirit's objective in writing the book of Revelation. Hallelujah, somebody. So you're saying, Pastor Palmer, what am I supposed to do with Revelation? We're going to find ourselves in just a second right in here, and it's going to teach us how to follow the Lamb's example and no matter what situation we find ourselves in in the 21st century. Isn't that exciting? Okay, let's go to Revelation chapter 1. Now that we know that this book is about Jesus, it says here in chapter 1 and verse number 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, that's a good way to start off the book, is it not? And if you look in the Greek, you don't see the word the there. The very first word that you find in Revelation in the Greek is the word apocalypsis. Now, in many of you will tell me, well, that means to reveal. Well, we know that it means to reveal. It's not just about the fact that it means to reveal. The very fact that it's placed right in the front does something more than just tell us it's a revelation. It tells us the genre of the book. Now, here's an important thing. How many know that if you don't understand genre, you're not going to know how to read something? What would happen if you read the newspaper the exact same way that you read the comics? Wouldn't that be a problem? 
What would happen if you read a love letter the same way that you read a science book? You know that's going to be a problem. So when you see here that this is an apocalypse, apocalyptic literature is very important first century because apocalyptic literature was something that was Jewish. And when Jewish authors, going back to fourth Esratus, second Baruch, which was other examples of non-spirit-inspired apocalyptic literature that's non-canonical, which is very similar to the book of Revelation, when you wrote apocalyptic literature, you were doing it in a very keen genre. You knew that symbolism was coming, numerology was coming, and that lots of things were not going to be literal, but we're going to come to you in metaphor because metaphor has a way of conveying something to you that literalness does not, and we speak in metaphors every single day, do we not? So hungry I can eat a cow. I was trying to get here today, and it took me 100 years. There was thousands of cars, all a million cars in front of me. You do it all, you'll do it before you leave here today. You'll speak in some type of metaphor, right? And it just conveys something to you. So we see a lot of metaphors. So going into the book of Revelation, we need to understand this. Not only that, but you look up theologically, John wrote this vision that he had from Jesus over the course of months. He had a vision of Jesus but he takes months to write it. In other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't rush anything. We think sometimes that John studied automatic writing. Mm, mm, mm. No, 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 no. John didn't do that. John was a very smart apostle. Some theologians believe he was actually a scholar. Isn't that interesting? That he wasn't just an uneducated fisherman, but he was one of the most brilliant minds at that time. And John was trained in writing literature. And so what he does is he takes his time and uses a literary style to convey to us what the Holy Spirit has conveyed to him about Jesus. You know what that tells me? That God will use your talents are you listening to me? And we'll take his time using your talents to produce what the Spirit has put inside of you. Isn't that something? Are you a writer? Are you an athlete? Are you a school teacher? Has God taken his time to develop that in you? Then the Holy Spirit can use that talent to convey what God has put inside of you. That should lift you up tonight. Come on, I'm, I'm preaching better than y'all saying amen. I bet you I'd get a better amen if this was a Sunday morning, amen? Come on, I want Sunday morning amens tonight. And so this is what John does. Now, you know, sometimes they say that your strength is actually, your, your, your weakness is your greatest strength. <clears throat> Some people have perceived the book of Revelation as weak. Not that God's word is weak, but they see a problem with it because First of all, theologians have a hard time dating the book of Revelation. Now, if you get into the theological world, this is Wednesday night, we can talk like this, right? You'll find that there is an argument about when this book was written. There are some people that believe it was written in 64 AD, around the time of Nero, because Paul, or excuse me, John alludes to Nero later on. But then there's some people that say it's 96 AD, and the, the, the conversation is going back and forth because there's really nothing in the book of Revelation that gives us a date as to actually when this was written. Now that can seem problematic, but you know something? It is a strength that we can't date this. 
And you know why that is? Is because we're going to see in just a second that because we can't date this, it doesn't matter what century you're in, you can find yourself in the book of Revelation because it's not dated. It is a message that not just for the first century, it's for the second century, the third century, the 16th century, the 21st century, and if Jesus decides to show mercy to the earth, it'll be for the 22nd century. It's for you and it's for me. It was for us in the 60s and the 70s and the 20s and the 40s. It is a timeless message for everybody. And then we find that there's not a lot of literalness in this book. There's going to be blood on the gar- in Armageddon all the way up to the horse's bridle. That's a figure of speech, a metaphor for the fact that there's going to be war. And you know what's interesting? People say, well, you see, the armies are going to challenge Jesus. We got the battle of Armageddon wrong. When you see how Jesus defeats him with the sword of his mouth, it wasn't even a war or a challenge. He just spoke, and they were wiped out. Which tells me that he's going to have such an overwhelming victory, it won't even seem like a war. Aren't you excited to be on the winning side, the side of the Lamb? Glory to God. Are you getting excited about the book of Revelation? It's not what you thought it was. It's not a conspiracy. Well, I think this political figure that I didn't vote for, he's the Antichrist. It has nothing to do with that. They said that about Hitler. It turned out to be wrong. They said it about Lenin. It turned out to be wrong. You said it about the last five guys that were in office. It turned out to be wrong. It's not about that. It's about who is on the throne ruling and reigning in the midst of crisis. And you're going to see just a second that the mark of the Spirit, are you ready for this? You know, we go to Pentecostal church and say, what's the mark of the Holy Ghost? The Holy Ghost mark is tongues. Have you received since you believed? And I'm with you. I'm Pentecostal to the bone. I didn't just say charismatic. I said Pentecostal. I believe the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you can have it now if you want it. You should have it now. Charismatics are like, eh, I'm not sure what I think about all that. You speak in tongues, that's good for you. I speak in tongues, I don't, I'm not sure about it. I'm Pentecostal, like, hey, get it now. <laughs> but I will say this. See, I'm a Pentecostal scholar. I'm working on a PhD in Pentecostal studies from the book of Revelation because I'm convinced that we can prove scholarly that the work of the Spirit is for today. But you know what I found out about it? You already know what I found out about it? The work of the Spirit isn't just about tongues. Tongues is a symptom, fruit of what the Spirit actually did. If you speak in tongues and I speak in tongues, that means that there's a uniting that's taking place. And that the work of the Spirit that you see happen in Azusa Street in 1906, which actually, actually predates that, is this very thing. That the Spirit is going out through the earth and He's pulling people from all the nations to whereas we have Africans and Asians and Americans South and North because we think we're the only Americans sometimes you go to South America and you say you're American they'll say well so am I all people coming together to make up the body of Christ and you ready for this God's not calling you to renounce your culture you're supposed to keep your culture Whatever culture you have, you remain, like Paul said, as you are. You just take that culture and bring it into the body of Christ. But guess what? If you keep your culture, you got to let me keep my culture. And we make up culture as the body of Christ together. 
I'm a white Caucasian Italian American. We do stuff at my Thanksgivings. We yell at each other, but we're not mad at each other. Amen? That's what we do. We have spaghetti at Thanksgiving because I'm a white Caucasian Italian American. Well, guess what? God's fine with that. And you got to be fine with that. And whatever you are, I'm fine with that. And if I'm at your house, I'm going to get involved in that and enjoy that because God is a multicultural God because the Holy Spirit is bringing people together. And that's why Paul said, let there be no division amongst you. You speak in tongues but are racist. You're not Pentecostal. I'm not a racist, but you don't like my culture, man. You're uncomfortable around my culture. Maybe you need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you to assimilate, to accept my culture. I'll tell you this. The moment you get baptized in the Holy Ghost, God's putting the nations in your heart, whether you like it or not. And he may not send you to the nations. He may send the nations to you. I'm called God to go to the nations, but you work at the bank. And when the guy who's the na- not the same race comes in, you get agitated by him for a second. He's sending the nation's student. You're failing it. You're doing. You're not passing the test. You got me there. How can I change that? You wake up in the morning and you say, "I love every race. I love every individual. I love every culture." And before long, you might just get a craving for Chinese food. Amen. Or whatever. You might all of a sudden pass Maggiano's and say, hmm, I feel like Italian today. What go on in there? Let the Spirit lead you. You follow me, this? Where are you getting all this from? The book of Revelation. I'll give this to you. I can't, I can't, we, we can't even get into it tonight. We did a class in London and, and uh, we were looking at exegetical things and, and they were really enjoying it. You know what's interesting is that the most important number in the book of Revelation is 12 and 7. And these aren't spooky. These aren't like Bible codes, maybe. We can find the name of Donald Trump and Barack Obama in there. You're not finding that. You're not finding that. Someone sent that to me. On, on, someone sent me that today. What do you think about what this guy is saying? I said, I stopped listening when he called Revelation, Revelations. If you can't get the title of the book right, I'm not listening to anything you have to say about it. Just like if you get my name wrong, I ain't listening to you. You call me Charles and my name is Chris. We're done talking. Right? Yeah. No, no, no. So, so, so back to the genre thing, okay? Back to the genre thing. 12 and 7, very important. 12 represents a perfect number. God's justice and God's government, how God functions. 7 was the most important number if you were, uh, if you were a, a Jewish person at that time. Because 7 represented a lot of things. What, what did God do in 7 days? Created the earth. What did it, what, how many times did they even dunk in the, in the river? How many sins does God hate? You get, you get it? So we go through, okay, how many times around the wall of Jericho? On what day? You guys are smart church, you're getting it. So you see a lot of sevens. How many churches to the book of, in the book of Revelation? How many trumpet judgments? How many seal judgments? How, if you don't know, just listen to your neighbor next to you. How many wrath judgments? Which, by the way, I think it's interesting that the first set of judgments was only one-fourth of the earth and one-third of the earth, which tells me that God's trying to have mercy on the earth. One-fourth is a lot less than one-third, but they still don't repent. 
which tells me that sometimes God gives mercy, but they still don't repent. So when you say, why is God judging the earth? They merited it in the first place, and God says, no, 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 just one-fourth of the earth. But they didn't repent, which tells me that Revelation is about God showing mercy to us, not trying to hurt us. It's interesting that when you're not listening to what God has to say and something bad happens to you, that was only one-fourth of what could have happened. Better get it right. That'll be one-third. Now you're dealing with two strikes. And if God's like the MLB, what's next is not coming, so you better start obeying. So we see all this, we see all this seven that's going on in the book of Revelation, and, and it, it is a magnificent thing to see. And then you see the number 12 that's going on, and that's a magnificent thing to see. And, and that brings me, let's just, I know we're, man, we're, we just have so much that we want to get through. Let's go here to Revelation. Well, you know what? No, no, no. Let me back it up here. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 8. It says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, he who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, this is extremely bad Greek. If you're reading John, you're happy because John has good Greek. His Greek is really good. It's phenomenal. It actually, I studied John because I fell in love with this Greek. Paul's Greek <laughs> is like Carrick's handwriting. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like my handwriting. If you buy books and you ask me to sign it, you'll see what I'm talking about. Just buy a book so you can, you can, make, you can take a picture of my handwriting on Instagram and say, look at how bad it's that. It's not, it, Paul's Greek is complicated. Jude, oh my gosh, Jude doesn't, Jude's Greek is the hardest, in the, it's the hardest book to translate in the Bible is Jude. When I had to translate Jude out of the Greek in my class, it was, I thought it'd be easy because it was a few verses. It's the hard, it took me longer than translating John. John has this good Greek and then he gets this verse here. And it's bad Greek. And you think, why are you doing this? And then you realize, I know why he did it. Because John is alluding back to Exodus, chapter 3, and Deuteronomy, where God says he is who is and was and is to come, and he says it in the Hebrew. And in order to translate the actual word for word from Hebrew to Greek, he would have to change the Greek to bring it over correctly into the Greek. But to leave it to sound like the Hebrew, he purposely uses bad Greek, which tells us here that the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. They are both one and the same. The God of judgment is about to be seen now in the end times being the God of mercy. So this is the God of the Old Testament. He is signaling you that Jesus Christ is God. Tell that to your Jehovah Witnesses, friends. Right here. I mean, if you're reading Greek, you can't be a Jehovah's Witness because of this first right here in the Greek. But he does something very interesting. Now, I did this in my book, Letters from Jesus. It's what literature guys do. We want to be smart and crafty, right? John had a literary style. Remember I talked about his talents? He does something called an inclusio. Say inclusio. Oh, you guys sound like Greek scholars. If you really want to really get interested in studying Bible study, don't just study just word for word. Just line upon line. Study the structure of a book. They'll tell you that. They'll go to, you go to Oral Roberts, they'll tell you that. You go to Southeastern, they'll tell you that. They'll te probably tell you to this school. Study the structure of a book. Because an inclusio is like a sandwich. How many ate a sandwich today? Let me see your hands. I actually ordered a sandwich for after service. And when I look at it, I'm going to think of the book of Revelation because John puts a sandwich to this. You see how he says that in chapter 1, verse 1. Look at that as the first or the top of the bun. You got it? Now go with me to Revelation chapter 22. And verse number 13, one of the last verses of the whole thing. 
and verse number 13 of Revelation chapter 22. Are you there? Someone tell me what he says. So he adds the bottom bun. So now you have at the beginning and at the end, John sandwiching the contents of the book of Revelation by a declaration of Yahweh, Jehovah, Jesus Christ saying, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who is and the one who come. What would that do to a reader? It would tell them that everything that happens in the book of Revelation is within the control of Almighty God. That's comforting. Yes, but we have free will. I know, but guess what? Your free will is still in his control. He didn't lose control because you made the choice he didn't want you to make. He's still in control. He didn't lose the control because the guy you believe that was supposed to be all this ain't enough. He's still in control. And he's never going to lose control. So when you're reading through the book of Revelation, you know it's important to understand? God's got this. And when we find ourselves in the book of Revelation, no, we need to understand he's got this. And when you think, and if, if, if he's in the beginning of Revelation and at the end of Revelation, guess what? He's at the beginning of your life and he's at the end of your life and your life is within the realm of God's control. You know what I have to remind myself sometimes? God, you started this ministry and you're gonna end this ministry and guess what? Every bill is in your control. Every place I go preach is in your control. Every country I visit is in your control. Every person that hates my guts and is trying to throw me under the bus and back up is within your control. My life is in your control. So what do I need to do? Chill out. Give your neighbor, do this, give your neighbor, go like this to your neighbor and say, here's a chill pill, take it. <laughs> Reach behind and say, here's a chill pill, take it. <laughs> so the first thing that we see, go like this with your hands. This, we, I call this exercise to my students, the crab exercise. Let's, act like, let's go like this with your hands. Now I want you to take one thumb like this, and make your thumb, your index finger, higher than your thumb. You got that? I want you to look at it. And then go like this, like you're a lobster. I'm just teasing. Now, this is how Revelation begins. Now, let's look at the structure. We're not looking at the verses yet. We're looking at the structure. Chapter 1, vision of Jesus Christ. Then we get into chapter 2 and 3. Two, seven churches, five of which had major problems, two of which had problems but weren't sinful problems. They're being persecuted. And there's a lot of negativity and things going on there that represents everything that we're going through today. And then all of a sudden we get into Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and then we sink down into chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 and lots of stuff just starts going on. We find ourselves in the valley. Boy, we find ourselves. We see a dread dragon being cast to the earth and swooping the stars and wormwood fall. And we're just, I mean, it seems like everything is spiraling out of control. But suddenly we find ourselves going back up to the top. And in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you know what we find? Him sitting on the throne with saints that are robed in white, victorious. In contrast to how we found the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Which tells me that this is kind of like the Christian life. You come down to the altar call, you got saved. Pastor Carrick, I got saved and everything is good. I'm going to Bible school and pistis training thing and you walking in with your new brand new leather Bible still smells like leather, amen. 
still smells like highlighter. Talking to your friends. You know, what's up? Chat. Talking to your friends. Hey, did you do the homework? What do you think about this first? Prophesying to everything that walks and talks. You in five Facebook groups about prayer? You're that person on Facebook that's sharing scriptures at 3 o'clock in the morning with eagles and waterfalls and mountains and script that makes it look like a Hallmark card. But then you get let go from your job. Then your house doesn't sell for what you had hoped. Don't confess that. Come on, y'all acting like you ain't going to go through nothing. <laughs> no, 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 you're going down. But what you'll see is that if you'll stay faithful to the Lamb, keep your eyes focused on Jesus, and resist the culture and the pressures, and resist the problems, and resist the challenges and the difficulties, and you walk with the seven spirits of God, who is the Holy Spirit, he is going to bring you back up to the top, and by the time this thing is over, you will have overcome. Isn't Revelation exciting? Why don't we preach from it more? I don't know. I, I, Lord, I'm trying to tell them. You know, when I was in Bible school, we got a few more minutes. Amen. I got, well, there's a clock back there, boy. After the, actually, Pastor Carrick told me that if I didn't, I'm waiting. He told me that if I didn't get done, that there was going to be a cane that comes from those doors and just. <laughs> I like, I'm glad it's there. I'm glad it's there. You know, amen. I'm sure when I get married one day, my wife will put a clock on me and say, you have 15 minutes. Now just finish preaching this to me and be done with it. So. It's very important that we look at Revelation. When I was in Bible school, I was uh, at the T.J. Jones Memorial Library one night studying. I was going through systematic theology, and I got to the apocalypse. You know, scholars, we call it the apocalypse. We're too good to call it Revelation. (laughs) We're going through the apocalypse literature. And that night I was studying, the Holy Ghost came on me. You know, the Holy Ghost will come on you when you're yielding your mind to him. When's the last time you yielded your mind to him? I love the Lord with all my heart. Yeah, but your mind is full of trash. Too much Instagram. Get off. When I was yielding my mind to him, the Holy Ghost spoke to me. I wrote it down in a prayer journal I still have. I don't know where he said, I'm going to call upon you one day to teach the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. Not yet. But when you do, People will be saved. They will be healed. They will be edified. And the Holy Spirit will be in demonstration in those services. I let it go. What's interesting is that God has a way of reminding you and fulfilling what he called you to do. God may have told you to do something and you felt like, you know, you buried that thing. He's going to remind you. Just like my mom when I was a kid used to remind me to clean my room. Just like your wife reminds you that the anniversary's coming up. God's going to remind you. And when I was uh, working, uh, I was writing, I was asking God, you know, what should I do? And the Lord told me to go back to school. Told me, not you. Told me. <laughs> Just because he told me that I don't go now and say he's telling you to do it. Told me to go study Greek. And I spent, I don't know, five years just studying Greek. 
was tough. People always say, hey, how do you do that in the Greek? You got five years? I'll show you. <laughs> got done with that. And when I got done with that, a publisher contacted me and said, we want you to write a book. Thank God for the publisher. It was my dream to get a publisher, but it wasn't until after I graduated. And I said, what is it that you want me to write on? We want you to write a Greek book on the second and third chapter of Revelation. Didn't plan for that. It's in there in the back. If I can throw in another, uh, another commercial for it. I'll sign it for you in the back. Not that my autograph's worth anything. And then after that, one of my professors came up to me, and he said, Chris, I want to talk to you. I said, yeah. And he goes, have you thought about doing a PhD? And I said, oh, man, that's acting like, have I thought about going getting my teeth pulled at the dentist? <laughs> but I prayed about it, and the Holy Spirit says, you need to get that. And I, you know when I got back at God, I said, okay, then you need to pay for that. $32,000, in case you got $32,000 laying around. Just, you can drop it off in the back. I said, yes, Lord, I'll, I'll faithfully do it. And it's four years of my life to do that. And he said, I ready for this. He sent me to the top Pentecostal theologian in the world who works at the University of Wales in UK. And he told me, I'll accept you as my student on one condition. I said, what? He goes, you have to work out of the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse. And it brought me back to 2003 when the Holy Spirit reminded me that he would tap me and call me to teach this book. You sense the anointing here? See how it's here tonight? I'm just talking about stuff. You know why it's here? Because he called me to do it. Whatever God calls you to do, that's where the anointing of the Holy Spirit is at. If he calls you to sell fruit on a fruit truck, you're going to have the most anointed fruit truck going through town. If he tells you to sell shoes at Foot Locker, that Foot Locker is going to have the anointing of the Holy Spirit all over it. Amen, somebody? Whatever God tells you to do, there's an anointing. And you know what I found out about the anointing? That's where the joy of the Lord is at. That's where the joy is at. That's where the peace is at. That's where the grace is at. When you're doing what you're anointed to do, that's when you beat the alarm clock up in the morning. You set your alarm clock for 6.30, and you're up at 6.28. Ever since I stepped into the anointing, I stopped using the snooze button. Amen, somebody? Well, sometimes. I still use it, you know. <laughs> Praise God. Hallelujah. How many are anointed to do something? There's two of you here. Praise God for the two of you. You have two anointed members, Pastor Kay. You're, you're doing something right, man. The rest, we'll just pray for them afterwards. We'll have a prayer meeting. Amen. What, what, what is this? Like, the, the, the God just say, let there be light? <laughs> let there be light. Praise God. Well, you know, we're, we're, so we're going through this. So, so just uh, let me get through this because they got that clock, and that clock is ticking. Let me say this. So we go through Revelation chapter 2 and 3 after the vision of Jesus Christ. And we find that there are seven churches that are being written to. Now, what has happened typically is that these churches have been separated from the rest of the book of Revelation. We slice them off. We don't deal with them the rest of the book of Revelation. But remember, this is who's being written to. You can't understand Revelation until you look at it through the perspective of one of these seven churches. This is who the letter's going to. Why do we exclude them from the rest of the book? 
And we find that there is Ephesus, lost their first love, which most scholars would agree, it's not the love for God, it's the love for each other. Guess what? You're going to lose the love for each other before you lose your love for God. We pray, Lord, let me love you with all my heart. He also said, love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for that too. So they don't love each other. Then we find Smyrna, and they're being persecuted, and they're praying. They're, 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 they're about to resist unto death, and they're crying out to God, and God comes up to them, and he says, listen, I know it's bad, but don't worry. It's going to get worse. <laughs> the devil's about to cast some of you into prison for 10 days, which, means, which is interesting. People say, what, why 10 days? 10 is a numerical value. Anything that's done in the book of Revelation is done in 10s. And we see that 10 is the smallest 10 in the book of Revelation. And we find 10 days of persecution in the church of Smyrna. How many years does Christ reign? A thousand. A hundred times greater is God's reign than the persecution that we have here on the earth. And that's something. When I compare my suffering of persecution to Jesus Christ's rule and my rule with him, it only seems like 10 days or a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. So how's God going to deal with my haters? He's going to have you look to the perusia or the coming of Christ. God may not deal with your haters. You know what he might do? He might let your haters try to deal with you, and so you keep your eyes focused on him. Hello, somebody? I saw a post on Instagram that said, <laughs> it said, <laughs> and it got a lot of likes. I said, I'm not liking it. God's about to deal with your haters and so strongly that when they see how he promotes you, they're going to wish they treated you better. I said, the only problem is when you read this, what if your haters also reading it? <laughs> you don't stop to think about that one, do you? Touch your neighbor and say, let's use our brains. I was going to post and say, God may not deal with your haters down here. He may just tell you to just love them and look to his coming. That would get like two likes. No, there would be three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Well, anyway, then we get to Pergamon. We find out they're dealing with sexual sin and problems and heresy, the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans are interesting study because you know who the Nicolaitans are, right? That radical grace crowd. I know I said it. You know who Nicholas was? Acts chapter 6, verse 5. The apostle Paul laid his hands on him and sent him out to do ministry. And we found out that he was in the book of Jude, a malcontent. A malcontent was so interesting because a malcontent, when you see this word, you would have laughed if you were reading Jude because this was a character in the Greco-Roman dramas that would always show up on the scenes and complain about everything. And it's said in Greek literature, Theophrastus wrote something called characters. And in characters, you had the stupid man, the petty man, and you have the grumbler, the malcontent. And the malcontent, would, they'd say, you found a treasure. And the malcontent would say, well, it didn't make me rich. You had a child. Yes, I did, but I lost all of my worth. He was never happy with anything. Yet the malcontent in the book of Jude wasn't somebody that was complaining about those necessities of life. He was complaining about God's moral requirements. How come I just can't sleep around with who I want to sleep with? How come I can't go to the club? How come I have to repent after every time I sin? How come, how come I have to tithe? How come I have to go to church? I don't like church. Why do I have to show honor to my pastor? Your pastor blessed you, I know, but I have to tithe. I don't like that. This was the malcontent. 
And you know what the malcontent ends up doing? He gets so dissatisfied with the more requirements of God that he tries to change them to satisfy his own disparage. And this was Nicholas. And you know what? He started a sect that went in and told the Pergamon church, guess what? You know what? You guys can just live the way you want because after all, good and it came out of Gnosticism Gnostics believed that the body couldn't be redeemed so it didn't matter what we did with it anyway so we could live the way they wanted because our spirit's saved and that's what God's taken to heaven you gotta be careful for it today then we find the church of Thyatira more of the same we find the church in Sardis they're so apathetic they're having no persecution because they weren't worth persecuting then we find the church in Philadelphia they're being persecuted by their Jewish uh, counterparts and then we find the Laodiceans and Laodiceans are a rich bunch of people so we don't just find the book of Revelation being written to poor folks we find it being written to rich folks too now you jump into chapter 4 you have a revelation of Jesus Christ on the throne revelation in chapter 5 more of Jesus on the throne and you get into the heavenly visions so whatever you were, we can boil the chapters down to seven churches into three sins. Number one, temptation to assimilate to the culture. Number two, giving up because of persecution. Or number three, you're so apathetic that you're no good. The rich church, we have money, we don't need God. Guess what? Your prosperity isn't a sign that God is with you. So guess what? Depending on how you were would be how you read the book of Revelation. If you were apathetic, it would wake you up. If you were being persecuted, it would encourage you. If you were assimilating to the culture, it might get you down to your knees and make you repent. You know what my dad told me? When he got saved, or before he was saved, the book of Revelation scared him. I don't want to read that. I don't want to read that. Isn't that interesting? The wisdom of the Holy Ghost. A sinner's going to read it and get scared. You have a whole lot of reason to be scared. Because in the end, you find out you don't have part in the kingdom of God. But now as a believer, you read it and say, thank God Jesus is coming. We're amongst those that stay faithful to the Lamb. We have a victory at the end. And if you're apathetic, Christian, you say, I better get busy because there's more to life than just my own silliness. You want to see something interesting? So seven is a very important number. Let's get back to the seven thing, okay? I got 16 minutes. I'm going to show you two really important things. Is that okay? Okay, go to Revelation chapter 21. So we're dealing with this number seven. Revelation chapter 21. So let's get back to this radical great. I'm just kind of now just, you know, all over. So we'll just give you some nuggets before you leave. Amen. Okay, Revelation chapter 20. How many have heard somebody say today, well, you know, I think that everybody's just going to go to heaven no matter who they are. It's called universalism. There's a lot of quote-unquote, I said quote-unquote, not me calling them that, others calling them Christians that are universalists. The Bible safeguards against this. Not just line upon line, word upon word, but also through the literary fabric that it's made out of. And he does it with the number seven. Now, this is good. If you uh, go to Revelation chapter 22, excuse me, chapter 21, you will see here in verse number 8 that at the end of this heavenly vision that John has taken months to write, he says in verse number 8, but, now this is the Greek word day, and it doesn't have to be here, but it's there. Or it would be actually Allah, which is a very strong contrast.
passive conjunction. It is sharp. It is like saying, but hear me and hear me now. On the contrary, as for the cowardly, I want you to count them up. The cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, sexually immortal, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. Their portion is in the lake of fire that burns with fire, and is a second death. How many lists of sins or sinners do we have here? Eight. That wasn't enough. He goes here in chapter 22 and verse number 15. It says this, outside the kingdom. He says this again. Are, let's count them, the dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. How many? Six. Now remember I said that seven was God's number and anything God does in seven is holy. So we find a list of sins, two of them to be exact. One eight and one six. One is excessive of seven and one falls short of seven. They fall on both sides of seven, meaning very clearly that these people have no part in God. And that sin by and large is either excessive or deficient. And using literary structure, John places it into Revelation to show you that there is good and evil, holy and true. What side are you on? Because if you practice this, you have no part in the New Jerusalem that we just saw overcame Babylon, which was John's code name for Rome, which we look at Rome today as the political and economic and social idolatry that we have seen in every century. Are we as believers united as one out of every tribe and tongue and people on earth who are filled with the Holy Spirit, or are we going to bow? And for those that bow, you have no part in the kingdom. So the challenge is, how do we not conform? You know how we do that? By following the example of the Lamb who overcame with his blood. Are you learning something about Revelation tonight? It's sobering, right? You see how it, it's joyful, but it's sobering. That's why I like this book. There's so much emotion here. One minute everybody's laughing and cheering, the next minute everybody's like, I might need to get up and get right with God tonight. <laughs> Your relationship like the book of Revelation is going to be like any relationship you have with anybody, ups and downs and twists and turns. Amen, someone? That's a good, healthy relationship. You know what I was telling Pastor Carrick in the back? is we're living in a culture today where you can follow and unfollow somebody like that. I was telling about, I have a thing on Instagram called Greek for the Weekend. You might, people, some people have liked every single Greek for the Weekend. I post one with a nuance they don't like and they unfollow me. They've been following me for years. 
You know, we didn't have that luxury back in the day. If our pastor said something we didn't like, we had to reconcile and deal with it. Nowadays, I'll just find the next pastor I like that wants to affirm the sin that's inside of me. And the book of Revelation ain't going to let you get away with that. You better accept it, all that's in there. Good, the bad, and the ugly. And if you're right with God, there is no ugly. You know in the church service when people just say we need to get right with God? Oh, I love that. I was in Guatemala preaching. Oh, my God. Back in January, the Spirit of God came into that place. And I told the pastor, I was, I couldn't, I was tearing up. I couldn't, I, I, I just, I don't cry a lot. But the Holy Ghost came over me. I took the microphone. I said, I need to answer the altar call. I got on my face. And the power of the Holy Ghost put tide right through my spirit. Wash me, clean me, renewed me. I got up and something inside of me was right again with the living God. I'm not saying I was in sin. I'm just saying I needed that. I was preaching. Uh, we were in UK preaching. They're having revival in the UK. You go over there. They're having revival. Me and Pastor Ramsey over there, we both wept like a little girl at a Justin Bieber concert, man. We were <laughs> crying. God was moving. He was restoring, reconciling. I said, I want to see this again. Amen. Okay. Ten minutes. Revelation chapter 6. Let's go there. I don't know how this fits into the rest of my sermon, but you'll do something with it. Revelation chapter 6. We have seven seals. Now, if you've been taught differently, take it the way you want. I'm going to give you just a way of looking at this. You don't like it? You don't have to accept it. I tell my students, you don't like what I'm saying? Then don't believe it. That's what scholarship is at. Revelation chapter 6. We have seven seals. Remember, one-fourth of judgments. First thing we see is the lamb open, and here we have a white horse rider saying, Come. And his rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came to conquer, and he was conquering. Hmm, you know what this sounds like to me? This sounds like to me dictatorship. Tyranny, a conqueror. How many dictators have we seen in, in, in the world history? Can you name one? Hitler? You just name them. They're all over, every country. I was in uh, Cambodia in the killing fields of Pol Pot where there was a Cambodian genocide, and they said in this field alone, 110,000 Cambodians died and were buried. And they took the skulls of those Cambodians, and they had made a whole tower of them. And they were still there. Talk about spooky. Couldn't Instagram that. And then we see something here, dictatorship. And then we see here in chapter, uh, verse number three, uh, come and out of that a red horse rider and taking peace from the earth. So we see war. And when we see in verse number five, a third seal, come and look, and behold, there's a black horse and a pair of scales in his hands. And he says, a quarter of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and don't touch the wine or the oil. Do you know what this means? Wheat and barley were what the middle class and the lower class ate. And it's scarce, but the oil and the wine were not to be touched. Isn't it interesting in times of famine, the rich seem to be okay when the middle class and the lower class suffer? Sounds like economic problems that are untouched by the rich, but yet everybody else has to suffer. And then you know what you see? The fourth seal. You see death come, and death shows up, and he has Hades, found him in hell, over in pestilence, and the beasts of the earth die. So you know what we see? We see dictatorship, we see war, we see economic problems, and we see lots and lots of death that happens unjustly. You know what this and you know what this sounds like to me? An average day in the life of a human being. Sounds like what I saw on 
CNN and Fox News, whatever you watch today. They're all going to report that. Then we see something in chapter five, the fifth seal. Then all of a sudden, the fifth seal, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. You know what we see? We see the death of the saints. Persecution. Christians dying. Come with me to Asia, an underground church. I was with the, the pastor I was just with. He was put in a hole for six months and beaten. Locked up for six years. They're still preaching the gospel. Because he was casting out devils. Because a lady was demon-possessed and she was eating razor blades and it was doing nothing to her. You know, if someone's eating razor blades, I said that in a church one time, I said, yeah, this guy who was eating razor blades and somebody said, sounds like my wife's cooking. I'm just teasing. <laughs> I'm just teasing. He got in trouble after that. She laughed. She had a sense of humor. Yeah, you know if someone's eating razor blades and they ain't hurting that, they got a demon or something inside of them. They're casting those devils out and they put them in prison for it. People dying for this. Sounds like the average day in the life of, of an individual. And then we see a sixth seal open, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became blood. The scars at the sky fell as a fig tree sheds winter fruit. And then all of a sudden, the kings of the earth, verse 15, they begin to shake, and everyone begins to hide themselves. And all of a sudden, you see that the great day of the Lord has come. And every time you see a theophany in the book of Revelation, which is an appearance of God, you see this earthquakes and thunder and lightning. Which is telling me here that after the average day in the life of an individual, the hope is in the fact that the day of the Lord is coming. Then there's a pause. And Revelation was, some people argue, was written like drama. The lights go down. Y'all follow me here still? The lights go down and another act takes place. And all of a sudden you see a break in the seven seals. And then here you see 144,000 sealed. Now I know people say they're Jewish missionaries and this and this, that. But I want to present to you another thought. Take it or leave it tonight. Okay? Take it or leave it. Let me give you my best shot. It says here, 12,000 from Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin were sealed. 144,000. What is the significance of 144,000? Well, Jehovah's Witness will tell you there's only 144,000 that's going to be saved. Well, they better work quick and better work fast. No, 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 no. 12 squared is 144,000. 12 times 12. So what do you have here? You have the perfect number of God 